and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 265, and today we will continue discussing what to do after the crossing of Carathros failed. It is just about time to unveil the bad option, which Aragorn had been begging Gandalf before, not even to speak about. <clears throat> so... Uh, that's where we're going to be. First couple quick uh, updates. This past weekend, we had our first ever maple moot, our first Canadian moot over in Toronto, which was a lovely time. We had 70 total attendees uh, between uh, on-site and remote. I had a great time there at the University of Toronto. Great uh, turnout by the University of Toronto Tolkien Club, uh, who gave a bunch of excellent presentations. Um some phenomenal. There is a phenomenal amount of subcreation going on up there. Uh, uh, really amazing quality uh, adaptation, Silmarillion adaptation going on. It was great. It was really cool. We, we were getting a bunch of like more than one. There was more than one presentation dealing with um, Fall of Gondolin musical. In, uh, interpretations. It was fantastic. Really, really good. Um, so anyway, wonderful time at Maple Moot. Great to meet folks. <laughs> one, one of my favorite moments from Maple Moot was um, about three quarters of the way through the day. Uh, there was a guy, undergrad, he was like a junior or something, um, came wandering down the hall because he was looking for the bathroom. And um, peeked his head in the room because our doors were open to the hall and there was this, you know, really cool talk on, on The Hobbit going on. And, um, you know, he stayed and listened to the Tolkien talk and ended up <laughs> staying the rest of the day. He was like, do you mind if I do you mind if I just stay? And we're like, no, it's fine. You can stay. And then he came and uh, he, he came to the pub with us afterwards and was, you know, hanging out with us till midnight. It was, it was really fun. And he had not only had not been planning to come, but didn't even know that we were there. Um, <laughs> so it was it was uh, it, it was it was pretty fun. Um so anyway, uh, great time in Canada for Maple Moot. Uh, fun first visit to Toronto. Didn't get to spend much time in Canada. I was sort of reflecting as I was driving home. I was like, well, I was actually in Canada for under 36 hours, but that's okay. Actually, I got to see quite a bit of Toronto, uh, a good deal more of uh, more of Toronto than I've seen of uh, some other cities I've gotten to uh, I've gotten to visit. So um, anyway, it was uh, it was a, it was an excellent time. Uh, really looking forward to uh, getting back up there again someday. Now, in the meantime, of course, the calendar turns now definitively towards Mythmoot. Um, and if you have not been able to get tickets for Mythmoot yet, we still have tickets available. You can still uh, sign up remotely for Mythmoot. Uh, Mythmoot, of course, is our, our biggest conference of the year. It's located down in Leesburg, Virginia, right near Dulles Airport. And uh, it takes place, starts on Thursday evening, uh, the last Thursday of June, and then going through uh, through the weekend until Sunday afternoon. Um, so it is uh, 
always a wonderful time. Mythmoot is just one of my favorite times of the year. And I am uh, 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 really excited, really looking forward to Mythmoot again. We're going to be back in our traditional venue, uh, which we had to give up last year, but we're back in our traditional venue in the, the National Conference Center. Uh, and uh, it's going to be great to it's going to be great to to see everybody uh, back there again. So uh, still plenty of time to sign up. Strongly encourage you to join us at least remotely uh, if you uh, if you can. Um, and uh, if you sign up remotely, of course, you can also get uh, access to the archived recordings of all of the presentations and talks and everything that happen um, at MythMoot as well. So anyhow, um, we have not figured it's been a little while since we've done a reenactment now, JJ. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I, I, <laughs> we could, I'd say we could try reenacting. Um, you know, we could do some scientific experimentation to see uh, how one uh, runs across the top of the snow, but it's going to be a tricky reenactment to do in June in, uh, in Virginia. So the uh, same thing with uh, the hypothermia reenactment, Drowsnake. Yeah, it's uh, both of them likely to wind up with atmospheric challenges <clears throat> down in the mid-Atlantic region in that particular season. Um, but um, we'll, um, <laughs> we'll see. <clears throat> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, you know, Bob, you're right. Maybe um, maybe we should try reenacting Karathras at, at Mountain Moot in Denver uh, in, uh, uh, when, we, when we head back. I'm blanking. When are we going to Denver? Not September this year. November, maybe? I'm forgetting. We have it. It's on the it's on the books. I'm forgetting the uh uh the date. But anyway, we're we'll be headed back, so um that'll be uh that'll be good. We'll have to give it a shot. Um anyhow, okay. Um so um <laughs> we'll we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Uh anyway. So that's what's uh, coming up on the... Oh, we also wanted to confirm, by the way, <clears throat> registration, I think, is not quite open yet, but I mentioned before that we were going to have another brand new moot this, uh, you know, in this coming season, in the fall, um, in a city we've never been to before. Um, we are officially going to New Orleans uh, in December. So on December 2nd of this year, December 2nd, 2023, we're going to be in New Orleans. We're going to, uh, for, I, and, okay, and I have to admit, we have not 100% decided on the on the title yet. Um, I was thinking of, like, a, a Cajun moot, maybe, or, or uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, yeah, New Orleans. New Orleans on December 2nd is definitely, uh, that is, a, that is, that is now a confirmed date. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be, that'll be a good time heading down to New Orleans. We've never been there before. Um, uh, yeah, Marty Moot is possible, but that's like literally just Tuesday Moot, right? Which is, first of all, odd to do on a Saturday. Um, Bayou Moot, that's a, that's also sort of a finalist there. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll try to figure it out. Um, uh, I know that the, you know, there are many, stereotypes and different kinds of cultural appropriation involved in the association between voodoo and New Orleans. Uh, but it's a rather a shame because voodoo moot is really fun to say, you know, so just on a pure euphony of vowels situation, that would be really fun. Um, but um, 
uh, I don't think we'll go that direction. But I'm just pointing out that it's really euphonious, <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> Anyhow, so we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But that's going to happen. <laughs> Whatever we call it, it's going to happen on the 2nd of December this year. Um, so that should be... Um, uh, uh, that should be good. Ben Yamut was another suggestion, actually. You know, that's uh, that seems to me legit. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, okay. So, um, so yeah. So we're we're doing we're doing we're doing Denver. We're doing Portland. We're doing uh, back to uh, back to Iowa for Middle Moot. Uh, back here to New Hampshire for New England Moot. Um, all kinds of. Uh, uh, all, all, all kinds of mood options coming on, uh, uh, coming on in the fall. So, um, one other thing I wanted to mention, I talked about it last week, so I won't, um, I won't spend too long with it this week, but I did just want to remind you about the May showcase for space that's happening this, uh, coming weekend on the 27th of May, Saturday, the 27th of May, we're going to do a day of, um, free short space modules that you can see you can sit in on the whole day you can come and attend whichever ones you want you can participate if you like um so if you just go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org go to the space section here and click on announcements you can get to this page um where you can get the register link where you can still register to attend and participate in the showcase we have uh dozens of people who have already expressed interest in that but i believe we could still accommodate more so uh i encourage that and uh, it's just going to be a really, really fun day. If you if you uh, fill out the form or send a quick email uh, to space at signumu.org, um, we can get you uh, all the information that you would need. Um, we're doing all kinds of things during the day. We've got space. Uh, space capsule is just a miniature little uh, half an hour class, 30 minute class, um, 30 minute discussion class um, with, you know, Real students and real teachers uh, doing awesome stuff in languages, in uh, creative writing, in fantasy studies, and in general humanities as well. So all kinds of things happening. I uh, uh, urge you to look through our really cool offerings for the day uh, and uh, uh, see if you'd like to join us just to get a taste for what our space program uh, is like. So it's going to be it's going to be really, really fun. Uh, and you don't have to, if you don't want to participate, if you know you're not going to be in a place where you're going to be able to, like, focus in a quiet space to take part in a civilized discussion, um, you will still be able to attend uh, sort of informally, right? just like as a spectator, essentially. That's uh, definitely going to be another thing that's going to be that's going to be uh, an option there. Um, so anyway... That's the other thing I wanted to remind you about. Now let's get to our text here. So you will remember that I boldly began uh, 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 with the first couple paragraph, well, the first paragraph, really, uh, of uh, of this second slide uh, in this new chapter. And that was looking at the response to Gandalf saying that... They would have no choice if they don't go on. They have no choice but to return to Rivendell, and we saw Pippin's face brightened visibly at the mere mention of return to Rivendell. Merry and Sam looked up hopefully, but Aragorn and Boromir made no sign. Frodo looked troubled, and of course, and we talked about uh, Legolas and Gimli's non mentions right uh, in this uh, in this context. 
I wish I was back there, he said. This is Frodo now, of course. But how can I return without shame, unless there is indeed no other way, and we are all ready defeated? You are right, Frodo, said Gandalf. To go back is to admit defeat, and face worse defeat to come. If we go back now, then the ring must remain there. We shall not be able to set out again. Then, sooner or later, Rivendell will be besieged, and after a brief and bitter time it will be destroyed. The ringwraiths are deadly enemies, but they are only shadows yet of the power and terror they would possess if the ruling ring was on their master's hand again. Then we must go on if there is a way, said Frodo with a sigh. Sam sank back into gloom. Um, okay. <laughs> Gandalf, Gandalf goes pretty far out of his way here to take back the option that he just gave them. <laughs> right. Um, exactly, Jackie. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Um, the consequences of failure are laid out laid out this way are pretty bleak. Yeah. I mean, he does want to make it clear if they go back with the ring to Rivendell, Gandalf sees this as simply admitting defeat. At the Council of Elrond, of course, we recall holding on to the ring was one of the viable options, of course. Like, can we... Can we defend it here? And of course, this is that's that's not a no-brainer, right? That's a very real question, a very real possibility, because of course, you know, the enemy is weakened um, by the absence of the ring, and so is it possible, right, that if uh, the ring is held against him, would somebody like Elrond in Rivendell? be able to withhold the ring, or, of course, Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest, as was discussed at the time. Um, so, yeah. Now, um, Admiral Kiriator, that's exactly a good question. Um, why not? Why can't they just set out again if they go back? Um, so, I, two things I would say to this. One um, is that well, okay, where would they go? Because, again, in a sense, one of the things that this does is kind of open up the entire can of worms of the Council of Elrond again, right? The Council of Elrond considered keeping the ring and trying to keep it away from Sauron, right? Um, the second option was sending it over the sea, right? Let's let's uh, ship it off to Valinor, and then it becomes their problem. Um, and surely they can hold it off from Sauron. And then the third option, of course, was to seek to destroy it. Having rejected the other two, they've tried to attempt the third. If the third fails, well, back to plan A or B, right? Gandalf addresses plan A. Oh, okay, dump it in the ocean like a Silmaril. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, notice... Gandalf's response to this. Back in the day, I mean, back in the Council of Elrond. His response was that they should seek a permanent end. He views chucking it into the ocean as a kind of abdication of their responsibility. Right? Um, so, I mean, Aranas, if you think about that, um, in comparison with the other three options, right? holding on to it and trying to keep it away from Sauron, sending it to Valinor and destroying it. All three of the, the thing that those really, the thing that those three have in common is they are all 
end games, right? They're all seeking a real solution to them. They're not just delays, right? I mean, if you uh, if you're gonna hold it and fight Sauron off if he comes for it, well, there you go, right? Um, it's gonna come that sooner or later. That's likely to come to a crisis, and it's just a question of whether you think you can win, right? Um, the second one, you hand it over to the Valar and it becomes their problem. That's also a pretty permanent solution. I mean, at least as far as they're concerned, right? They will have done, they would have done everything that they could at that point. The third option, of course, destroying it is even more final or, you know, also very final. The C option is a mere procrastination, right? Um, and... To just, so even going back to number one, right, just to, to keep it, right, to keep it and hope we can resist Sauron. Um, you could say a corollary to that is just to, to keep it in hiding, right? Like, let's, um, let's play keep away from Sauron indefinitely. Let's give it to a hobbit, right? And then let's conceal the hobbit deep and dark, right? Let's, uh, let's, uh, Oh, well, hey, they already did that with Gollum, I guess, right? And that worked for 500 years, but not forever. Um, but that's exactly, that's sort of exactly the point, right? The idea is that's not a solution. That's just trying, that's not solving the problem that has arisen. That's simply an attempt to avoid the problems, right? Um, and at the end of the day, tossing it into the sea, um, tossing it into the sea is no different. It's just hiding. It's just playing keep away, right? Um, and you know, Gandalf's Gandalf's argument against that, you know, when he says, you know, we should seek a final end to this. Um, uh, we should seek a final end to the, even if we don't hope to make one. He clearly feels that they've been giving some kind of marching orders, right? The fact that the ring came to them, came to them the way that it did, right? By these strokes of providence, by great good fortune or bad fortune, depending who you are, the ring has happened to come into their power at this exact moment. And that... Gandalf clearly feels that you then just take it, take it and chuck it into the ocean and say, well, not my problem for the next, I don't know what, thousand years or something like that. Like that's, um, that is not the proper response. Like they've been given, it's like when Aragorn says that he takes the, the, the message of the dream to be a, to be a call, to be a summons, right? Um, when he hears about Boromir's dream, he's like, okay, I'm getting the mess. I am supposed to come to Minas Tirith. Like that is, um, this is, this is a, this is a call that I have to answer. I'm receiving a message here and I need to answer that message or else I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to end up on the wrong side of history, <laughs> right? If I don't, if I don't answer this call. Um, and, Gandalf and Elrond, I my reading of them in the Council of Elrond is that that's very much how both of them feel. That the ring coming to them now, 
I say now, right when the enemy is beginning to stir, right when Sauron has re has returned to Mordor and reestablished himself in the same year, right? Like, you know, in the entire scope of the Third Age, in the very same year in which Sauron reveals himself at last and takes up his new uh, position in Mordor, is the very time when the ring comes out of hiding and gets into the, the possession of a hobbit known to Gandalf, right? Um, that's like Aragorn taking the message of the dream as a summons, Gandalf and, and Elrond seem clearly to think. That is, uh, it's not quite a set of instructions, but it's telling, uh, that is, it doesn't tell them what to do exactly, but that they should do something and not do nothing and throwing it into the ocean is a at least a first cousin, if not an actual sibling, of doing nothing, right? Let's try to, you know, go back to the, go back to the status quo, right, of before. But the status quo of before won't, won't do, right? Things have changed now. Um, but, um, okay, so, so can't chuck it in the ocean. Um, Gandalf is not even opening up the should we send it over the sea thing. Again, that for that one, Elrond had a pretty definitive answer. Right? He said that those in the West would not receive it. It was Elrond's insight that this problem is a Middle Earth problem and that they are it is their responsibility. They, the council's responsibility. Right. Those to whom those who were gathered there at that um, who were called to that council, though he didn't call them. Um, this council was assembled at just this time, though he didn't plan the assembly um, in order to decide what to do with the ring. Like He's like, this is our call for us to try to send it over the sea again would be merely an abdication of responsibility. And he thinks that they won't even receive it. Um. So, that's not an option, and Gand no, Gandalf doesn't make it an option either. Gandalf, he, so the, the 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 sort of tacit restriction of their options here, I think, is important. It at least reveals something important about Gandalf's own point of view. Uh, there are only two options, really. At the end of the day, there are only two viable possibilities. One is to keep the ring and try to fight Sauron off, and the second is to try to destroy the ring. Anything else is wasting time, right? Anything else is abdicating the responsibility that's been given them. Um, you know, is uh, deciding not to do anything with the time that is given to them, basically. Um, yep, yep. <laughs> oh, oh, stinging words from two juice men. An abdication of responsibility on the part of the elves? Say it ain't so. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I hear you, I hear you. Um, yeah, yeah, and Aranas uh, offers a, a good analysis of the two surviving options. Keep it and try to fight Sauron off or attempt to destroy it. Option one, Sauron wins. Option two, Maybe Sauron doesn't win. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Less than a hundred percent chance of uh, of 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 defeat, because Gandalf is telling them he is making that clear, right? Um, he is making it clear 
that the that are the other option, the return to Rivendell option, the let's hold off, hold the ring and fight off Sauron and try to keep it away from him in order to save, you know, the rest of the world. Um, to go back is to admit defeat and face worse defeat to come. Notice, of course, Frodo has this same intuition. Um, how can I return without shame is his question, right? Um, and I think shame, that's really strong, right? That's that's very strong. Um, and I, I think clearly, given how uh, monumentally stacked the deck is against them here, I mean, everybody knows um, that they do, in fact, have a very small chance of success, right? Um, in fact, of course, as we were discussing at the time, Elrond seems to be uh, <laughs> trying to minimize their chance of success, right? By... Um, choosing not to send Glorfindel or, or anybody too strong, you know, with them. Um, but, um, but that's not, of course, the point, right? There wouldn't be any shame in attempting to destroy the ring and failing. Failure wouldn't be shame, right? It wouldn't bring shame. But for him to return, to return now, to get only a little part way of the journey, not even get across the mountains. You know, those same mountains that are right next door to Rivendell, right? Um, I mean, it's, they've, uh, they've gone quite a ways by this point, but, you know, the real danger of their journey hasn't even begun. So basically, what when Frodo talks about feeling shame if he returns, the shame would be attached not to failing, but to giving up. You know, and saying like, well, you know, we, you know, we tried, did everything we could. I guess we did everything we could, right? And we didn't do everything we could. But though he leaves that option open, right? Unless there is indeed no other way and we are already defeated, right? If there are, in fact, zero options, right? If we have, in fact, failed, if, if we can go back to Rivendell and say, we tried everything. We tried everything and it didn't pan out. Then... There would be no shame. There would be no shame, right? That's why he introduces that with unless, right? If it's not true that there is no other possibility, then it would be a shame to return back because we'd, 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 we'd just be giving up. We would be failing in our entire responsibility. We'd be shirking the responsibility. And Gandalf says to go back is to admit defeat and to face worse defeat to come. So notice how he is separating the two things, right? The defeat of their quest, their own personal defeat. They would have fallen short of, you know, the task that was laid on them because they would not, in fact, have tried every possible thing yet, right? And they would also, so they would, that, that is the, the first defeat, the immediate defeat, and the worst the worst defeat to come, of course, is the final victory of Sauron when he gets the ring. And that's, of course, what he is going to go. Gandalf is then going to spell out. If we go back now, then the ring must remain there. We shall not be able to set out again. Um, now, why does he say that? I know some people were suggesting um, that um, I know that some people were suggesting that, well, like, why, why, why couldn't they? Like, why did they, why can't they just go try another pass or something like that? I correlate this 
with what the evidence we've already seen in this chapter and the end of the previous chapter of Gandalf's complete abandonment of secrecy. Right? I don't care if bird spies see us. I don't, you know, he's already revealed himself. He believes that his presence has already been made known. And I think that he believes that probably both Saruman and Sauron are going to come to a shrewd guess that Gandalf trying to cross the mountains was doing so in the company of the ring, right? Sauron knows that they have it. They had it in Rivendell, right? So there were a lot of possibilities, right? There was a lot of uncertainty. They were trying to take advantage of the uncertainty of when they would set out, where they would be going, what direction they would be going and everything, right? Now it's known exactly where they are, which means, as we will see, spoiler pursuit is going to begin pretty soon, right? So I think that Gandalf is thinking, look, at this point, if we just try to get back to Rivendell, we're going to be hunted the whole way there, right? So when they, if they survived and made it all the way back to Rivendell, the enemy, both of the enemies, would certainly know that the, by the time they got there, that the ring was there and they'd, they'd be out on their heels, right? I don't think there is any chance that they could leave again. Um, at this point, I think it would be the most they could do to get back to Rivendell. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Arnas, you're, you're, you're right. Um, going back is a bad idea, yet Rivendell is the closest source of support on this side of the Misty Mountains. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and by the way, you see, if we think about this for a second... From Sauron's perspective, you see why this is going to look like a dead giveaway, right? You're Sauron. You know that the enemy has your ring. What are you thinking? What do you expect? You expect one of your qualified enemies to take up the ring and challenge you with it. And you are concerned about this because that person could really very likely overthrow you. So, apparently it's not going to be Elrond, because he had the opportunity and sent it away. Apparently it's not going to be Gandalf either. But uh, the Gandalf is here sign, you know, the Gandalf is here flag was run up the pole on top of Carathras, um, the, you know, right on the Redhorn Gate, the pass leading to Lothlorien. That can't be good. Uh, and even if it's not going to Galadriel, which has to be, right? I mean, Galadriel getting the ring has got to be Sauron's worst case scenario. It's hard to imagine from Sauron's perspective a worse case scenario than Galadriel getting the ring, right? Not only is Galadriel quite likely the strongest of all of his opponents. Um, but she's also, um, I don't know, <laughs> most likely to take him out, I think. I mean, I'd, I wouldn't mess with Galadriel. Um, 
so yeah yeah um yeah i think that that's um that's a big deal Galadriel the action hero yeah Galadriel who is like rule a realm of my own yes thank you right like i mean she's recovering from her ambitious time right uh you know she's um she's shown signs of increasing wisdom since her early rash days cuz which even in the very limited um retcon of Galadriel that got included in the published Silmarillion, we can see it. And we can see it even more in the retcon of Galadriel that didn't make it into the published Silmarillion, um, but which Tolkien wrote elsewhere. Um, Galadriel is uh, is a lot. She is, she is a lot of personality. She is a lot of... Um, she, is, she is forceful. Again, like... Um, you know, like maybe you could imagine somebody else like Elrond taking Sauron's ring and using it merely defensively or something, right? I guess, again, if Sauron's making a list, he's like, okay, uh, I mean, he's probably got like, like whiteboards and stuff where he's like doing different scenario planning. Uh, I, I, I imagine, right? Um, so he's like, okay, you know, so um, what do we do if, you know, Elrond claims the ring for himself? What's the, what's he likely to do? What are we going to have to do against him? You know, what do we do if, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, uh, but Galadriel, man, um, again, I just, I have to think. I have to think that's worst case scenario. And there it is. Like, he's got to be thinking, oh man, they are making a beeline for Lothlorien with the Ring of Power. This is very, very bad. Um, so if Gandalf is correct, if Gandalf is correct, um, and we have nothing but his word for this, and maybe he's exaggerating, maybe he's just expressing his own fears, we don't know about you know, writing Gandalf this here in letters that can be read all the way down to the mouths of Anduin. Um, that might be hyperbole, right? Um, I mean, he could perhaps mean merely like, I've just made myself really, really conspicuous and there's a, you know, a, 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 a very decent percentage chance that somebody noticed that. Um, or maybe he's being quite perfectly literal and, well, not literal because there are not literal words in the sky presumably. Um, but, um, uh, but, you know, maybe his, maybe his, he is stating his fears quite accurately and he knows for sure that Sauron and, and Saruman must have detected him and known that he was there. Um, in any case, um, we know that, uh, or he has reason to believe that at least Sauron and possibly Saruman are going to know that they're heading with the ring towards Lothlorien. At least are going to think that, right? So Sauron probably not going to just sit on his hands on that one, right? Uh, his worst case scenario is coming true. He's going to have to do something about it. Anyway, okay. So sooner or later, Rivendell is going to be besieged. And after a brief and bitter time, it will be destroyed. Gandalf has, this is not a subject of debate. 
right? He's not going to, he's not going to even raise this, but notice how he's not even giving them a chance. Not all of them were there, right? Most of them were there. In fact, everybody but Mary and Pippin was there and Bill were there at the council. Um, so, but, you know, to forestall Mary and Pippin saying the same thing that was said at the council and saying, maybe we can, you know, um, maybe we can take them out. Um, but, um, yeah, um, Everett, I don't know. I also am unclear exactly what signature Gandalf thinks he left behind. Um, I don't understand how that works, how the mechanism works. By what means exactly are others going to perceive him? You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, uh, all again, this is why all we have is Gandalf's statement there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, don't want to struggle. Let me come back to that here. Um, <laughs> sorry, Nancy, I missed your comment that, of course, in all of this, in all of these considerations of Sauron's concerns of the future, I've been, uh, I've not been taking into account, um, uh, this, the, you know, the daunting specter of Celeborn the Mighty uh, uh, setting himself against Sauron, uh, truly. Look at me assuming that it would be Galadriel who would take it. She would probably, it would probably be Celeborn. He's such a go-getter. You know, I think he'd probably take it for himself. Um, but um, anyhow, yeah. So, um, no, I... Um, Sorry, I'm just thinking about Gandalf's sign again, and I should, because we've already talked about that, and I don't have anything new to say about it. I just, I don't understand it either. I honestly don't. I don't know what or how. I don't know what people are going to detect. I don't know how they're going to detect it. I certainly don't think it is merely a matter of, I mean, Gandalf has emphasized, you know, when Boromir suggests they bring firewood up the mountainside, Gandalf says we must not use the wood unless it is a choice between fire and death. And when he says that, he is clearly thinking of the way in which, you know, because as Sam would tell you, um, there's no better way to say here we are in the wilderness than by lighting a fire bar shouting it, especially if you do it on a high place. The beacons of Gondor work for a reason, right? So let's not build a little miniature beacon of Gondor when we're trying to remain hidden up here, right? I mean, anyone for a long ways around could look up and see, oh, look, there's somebody, you know, somebody is in the pass, right? Look at that. There's a campfire up there, right? I can see the flames from here. Um, that would be a huge dead giveaway. I do not have any reason to think that when Gandalf is talking about being revealed all the way down to the mouths of Anduin, um, he is thinking in those kinds of terms, like they saw the fire and could tell from the fire that it was him. Um, I, 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 it's, that can't be. That can't be. There is some other kind of um, metaphysical tell that apparently has happened. Um, and, uh, and we really, we really don't know. Um, it is clearly his use of his own power. Um, uh, 
that others can detect that is new information to me. Right? I mean, I we did we ever have any reason to suspect that before? Was there anything that anyone did or said in The Hobbit or up again up through chapter 3 of book 2 that suggested that when a wizard uses magic it is detectable by other people i i mean i don't recall that um so anyway um it's uh yeah yeah but again even it doesn't matter some people are talking about the color of the flames i it, it wouldn't matter it can't matter um that is okay. Like, yes, you can imagine a circumstance where, like, Gandalf makes green flames and everyone's like, green flames? That's a Gandalf trademark, right? I can see the flames from here, down on the plain, you know, down in the in the, in the tumbled land. I can look up and I can see the green, I can see the flames. So I know that somebody's up there. And since the flames are green, I know it must be Gandalf QED, right? It's possible to imagine a circumstance like that, but that's clearly not what Gandalf is talking about. Because um, not even Legolas could see flames on, you know, a campfire on Carathros from the mouths of the Anduin, right? I mean, even if you could see that far without having to worry about the curvature of the earth, there's another set of mountains in between, <laughs> right? Um, so that's not, um, that, that isn't, that clearly isn't a thing. Um, I think that there is hyperbole going on here but again i don't it's I, I i don't believe that it's about uh the color of the flames or somebody seeing that and knowing that it must be him um for one thing we know that we know from his fireworks display that gandalf is perfectly capable of creating lots of different colors of flames right i don't think he would be um you know, I don't think Gandalf is up there like, well, I can cast magic spell, magic fire spells, but I only have, you know, green magic, like green fire spells memorized. If only I had a normal red fire spell. Like, it's not, I don't think it's like that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, as an old bazaar, I do agree. It does seem that Gandalf has made an actual physical change in the world. Um, it is not an illusion. He has made something burn that was not burning before. Um, and so, yes, he has done something. He has reached out with his will uh, and he has made a change in the world. And that's apparently detectable. So, again, I, I, all I have to do, although I think it's perfectly fair to suspect a certain amount of hyperbole, a certain amount of exaggeration, um, I mean, Gandalf is being grumpy. And I could imagine, I mean, when he says that, he's being grumpy. And I can imagine that he's, you know, exaggerating a little bit in his grumpiness. Um, but the change in his actions, his disregard for secrecy now, um, suggests to me, you know, such that he's now changing the entire plan of their march. We're, we're marching by day. doesn't matter. Right. As soon as it gets light, we've got to go. We're not going to wait. We remember we talked about this yesterday, er, yesterday, you know, last week. We can't um, we can't wait. Um, you know, 
it's nighttime. It's it's sunset right now. We're exhausted. We can't keep walking all night. Um, we can't wait for tomorrow night, right? You know, we can't sit here for an entire 24-hour cycle and then begin a new secret journey by night again. Like, not an option. We've got to, we've got to go. We have to sleep. So we're going to sleep now, and then we're going to go on during the day with all these birds flying around, and we don't care. Um, but um, anyhow, all of this is to say that he seems to feel very confident that they are going to be at least tracked, if not actually pursued, back to Rivendell. Um, their discovery is certain, um, and their ability to leave with any hope of being like basically, if they return to Rivendell, their only two, the only two outcomes at that point, will be either remaining there and eventually becoming besieged, or leaving, being watched and tracked the entire way, and then being ambushed somewhere in the wilderness, which is not better than staying at Rivendell. Like, staying at Rivendell would be their best option at that point. And as he says, it's a bad option. Um, so, yeah, this is grim. Now, I want to pick up... Um, hang on. Uh, Fourth Dauntless... No, wait. Yes. Um, Doer Stroke. I think it was it was you that I said I just wanted to get back to. Hang on a second. Uh, it was a long time ago, though. Um, there it is. Yes. Um, you were saying it's interesting. Um, the focus, not on the power that Sauron would gain with the ring, but the power that the Nazgul would gain. Yeah, that's the, the one that I wanted to point back to. Um, I think that there are two things we can conclude from this. One is simply they, at least what, six of the nine of them have met the ring rates before. Boromir still not met. Yes, he has. Boromir has met the ring rates. Okay, seven. Seven out of the nine of them have met ring rates before. I don't think Legolas or Gimli have so far as we know, right? But all of the rest of them have encountered the ring rates before. I forgot about Boromir's little battlefield experience where he met the ring rates. Um, they've all encountered the ring rates. None of them um, zero members of the party have encountered Sauron. Well, Gandalf, possibly the whole Dol Guldur experience, there's a chance. Um, with the possible exception of Gandalf, none of them have ever... They don't, ha they don't have a category, right, for how powerful Sauron is. Um, essentially, he would be saying, um, you know, the... Sauron is really, really powerful. It's like more powerful than you can probably imagine right now. But he'd be like way more powerful even than that if you got the ring. Like it would be all kind of meaningless, right, at that point. But, um, uh, a fourth thought was yet. No, that doesn't count. I'm talking about Gandalf's Gandalfian experience, not his Aloran experience, um, which it is not obvious to me that he can fully recall at this point. Um, I, it's possible. I don't believe that the text is certain about that, um, but it seems to me very likely that Gandalf does not actually retain all of his memories of being a Loren um, prior to his incarnation. I mean, but anyhow. Um, so, um, 
none of them have any I mean like it's all it's it's just like meaningless proportions at that point but they've all um they've all met the ring well again most of them have met them 77% of them have met the ring rays um so that's what he goes by the ring raids are deadly enemies but they are only shadows yet of the power and terror they would possess if the ruling ring was on their master's hand again. So think about that, hobbits, right? You've met them. You've faced them, right? I mean, you know, Frodo, you stood there across the, you know, watching them come toward you across the ford. You've, you know, all four of the hobbits have, um, you know, were there in the dell with the ring raids closing in around them, Right. Um, you know what that was like. Boromir, you faced them on the battlefield and you know that like you, your army could not stand where the black captain came, right? Um, now, take all that stuff and um, you know, multiply that by an order of magnitude, right? They're only shadows of the power and terror they would possess if the ruling ring was on their master's hand again, um, and terror they would possess. Remember how paralyzed you were by terror, Merry and Pippin say, right, when you were in the dell under Weathertop after Aragorn stopped singing, right? Um, now, again, amplify that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, JJ, good question. It's conceivable that the message to Erebor could have been a ring wraith, and so Gimli might have met one? Maybe. Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to continue with uh, the idea, which I find more plausible and more appealing, that... Um, it was the, the the mouth of Sauron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mouth of Sauron, I think, all day long, in my opinion. Not only the fact that it sounds like him, um, uh, like it even seems like his rhetoric, but it's just, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to imagine Sauron sending a Nazgul as a diplomat. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, I, I, I think it was a human servant. Yep. Yep. Um, and fourth Dallas, no, we don't know for a fact that Gimli was part of that conversation. We're getting that story from Glowen at the, uh, at the, um, the council. But anyway, whatever. Point is, um, I think he's talking about the ring wraiths because he's wanting to give them a point of reference that they're all, or most of them are familiar with. Um, by the way, as a side note, I've been thinking a lot about, so, um, at New England moot last year, uh, Mark, uh, who uh, goes by Flamifer of Westerness, um, Flamifer gave a 
his give a presentation at New England Moot last year of a post that he made uh, based on a post he made on the discussion board. And the more I've thought about it, the more I think he's correct. Um, it's a wild, it sounds like a wild thing to say at first, but the more I have come to um, think about it, the more plausible it seems. And his premise is they don't realize that destroying the ring is going, they don't realize yet that destroying the ring is going to weaken Sauron forever. Um, they don't know at this point in the story. Nobody knows. Not Elrond, not Gandalf. None of them know that destroying the ring means winning the war. What they, th the only evidence that we have, what they keep saying is we have to keep it off the master's hand. And the, there are only a couple ways to do that permanently, right? One is to defy him and fight him off. A second is to send it to the West. And the third is to destroy it. By destroying it, we can ensure that he will never have it and never be able to use it against us. Um, and, um, I think, uh, it's hard because Flamifer's argument is primarily an argument from absence. That is to say, like, they don't ever talk about that before we... That's not that idea of Sauron becoming a permanently diminished and helpless spirit after the destruction of the ring is never voiced until the return of the king. Nobody ever says that. Um, and that's true. Um, I, Dr. Benway, I believe it very likely that Sauron knows his peril if the ring is destroyed. Um, but I don't know that Elrond and Gandalf or Galadriel know that. Um, anyway, um, so Silk Weskit, that's exactly it. Like, Sauron says no because he thinks it already was destroyed. They think he thinks it was already destroyed, <laughs> right? But that's one of the really suggestive moments. If they believe that Sauron believes that the ring was destroyed, but he's still, like, fine, apart from the fact that he's, you know, he's he's only operating at 50% or whatever, but, um, you know, so he's only, uh, um, he's not, he's not going, uh, uh, He's not operating at at, at, at full levels. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, no, but, they, but, but trifle, they, they, they I, I'm not talking about right now. I mean, they do, they make the, I mean, he, of course he knows because he's met Gollum, but he's already tortured Gollum, right, by now. Um, but, um, uh, but, yeah, but no, they, they, they say that Sauron thought it was destroyed. Um, and I, I, they might be wrong about that. And in any case, uh, it was a very provocative thesis. But I, th the more I've been, I've been rolling it around in my head for the last seven months now, and the more I do, the more I think it may well be right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, um, 
just it's I've been thinking about that because of course again in thinking in Gandalf thinking about what they do um what they're doing and and what failure means and why they need to be doing what they're doing um it, it isn't explicitly a question of there's only one way to win it's how do you keep the ring from being on the ring wraith's master's hand again right that is the thing um the other option the Sauron will be functionally destroyed and the Black Tower will fall and the war will be immediately and you catastrophically won is never a scenario that they even discuss. Um, yeah. Um, and yes, Trifle, that's exactly what it seems like to me. Um, to look to see how Gandalf the White starts giving a whole lot of information that no one else seems to have had previously. Yeah, I don't think that's a mistake, right? I think that it, we don't ever hear anything like that until after Gandalf returns. Um, but um, anyway, it's um, it's 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 a very interesting prospect. And by the way, completely alters uh, the whole Yeet Isildur thing, right? Um, there is, they don't, any of them know how the ring of power works, how the ruling ring works, right? Um, they don't know that all you have to do is throw it in the fire in order to destroy Sauron. When Elrond mentions the fires of, of, or, of Oradruin near at hand, they're still talking about keeping the ring away from Sauron. They're not talking about destroying Sauron. Um, anyway. Um, but let's, um, I just wanted to mention that I know it's a sidebar, but I wanted to throw that out there because I think it's, as I say, I'm not, um, I'm not a hundred percent convinced. It's something I'm going to be really thinking about carefully though, as I continue my march through, through the fellowship of the ring, writing my book. Um, definitely something I've been thinking about and noticing as we go through, um, uh, yeah. Um, JJ says that they do seem to think that destroying it would be at least some kind of victory. Yeah, the kind of victory that it would be if your enemy has a super weapon that would certainly immediately annihilate you and you destroy that super weapon, right? Um, thus preventing his sudden and immediate victory. And now there's no chance that his victory will be either sudden or immediate, right? Um, that that would be a victory, right? That would be a, an excellent end to accomplish, right? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, but let me go back to <laughs> Bob. Yeah, thank you for reading my mind. That was exactly in my head, and I'm like, should I go there? No, yeah, but I will, because it's Bob's fault now. Um, they're going for the Luke blows up um, Luke blows up the first Death Star scenario. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Um, except he can't build it. He would. It would be blowing up the Death Star so permanently that he couldn't possibly build a second one, 
Right. Um, but of course, it's more than that. Um, it would be accomplishing even a great deal more than that. But it's more like uh, it's more it's it's that's a, a fitting parallel in some ways, I think. Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. OK, anyway. I want to go back to a follow up point that I briefly saw go by. Um, when um, Dora Stroke was co we're coming back to, there it is. Okay, Dora Stroke says that he thinks there's more here than just using the ring race for comparison. Um, I think Sauron is a sort of incarnation of hubris. Will keep pouring his power into his servants to leverage his evil. Um, totally, absolutely agree. We're gonna see this is actually gonna happen as is without the ring, right? When the Witch King comes back. Um, when, you know, Ringwraiths 2.0 are revealed post the, you know, their Rivendell aquatic experience, um, they're going to be more powerful, both because they're closer to Mordor and because they've been, they've been recommissioned, right? And I think that Gandalf is pretty clear that they have been given more power now this last time. Um, you know, I think that that is even implicit in, what is it, Shagrat? Who says they're his favorites these days. Remember that? It's a strange comment. Um, as if the power of the Ringwraiths, the terror that is wielded by the Ringwraiths, uh, the command that the Ringwraiths are given over the forces of Sauron, is not just an inescapable part of their identity, right? This is not just like a given, um, but it's a new thing, right? Like they've been, there was a question about who was going to be made the great captains, right? Who, you know, if there was some kind of like anointing of power that Sauron was going to give to those who were going to lead his forces off on their, you know, um, their assault. Um, but it turns out it's going to be the Ringwraiths who get the nod, right? Um, but um, anyway, anyway, um, so we don't have to talk about Shagrat right now, but this, this just occurred to me. Um, a sort of a corollary there. But anyway, Dora Stroke, that is to say, you were absolutely right. He's not just saying everything is going to be equally proportionally worse, so take the ring race and imagine them equally proportionally worse. I mean, he's kind of saying that, but I agree it's not just that. I do believe that he would be pouring, I mean, I think we have every reason to believe that he would be pouring more and more of his power, a great deal of his own power. Um, he is not likely Oh, it's Gorbak who says it. Thank you, JJ. Um, he likes them. They're his favorites nowadays, so it's no use grumbling. His favorites nowadays. Right? Nowadays. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, and for Dauntless, I think that you're right about that, too. Um, that it's also probably a necessary explanation for the trolls who can survive in daylight. Um, yes. Yes, yes, that Sauron has poured more of his spirit um, into them as well. Um, yep, yep. 
Um, I, Emily, that's a such a good question, isn't it? Who were Sauron's favorites before? Like, I mean, if um, if Gorbag, remember Gorbag is the one who's from Minas Morgul, so you'd think, you know, if anybody would have some, you know, if any of the lesser servants of Sauron have any kind of a historical viewpoint, right, on, uh, you know, any kind of a perspective on the current status of the Nazgul in uh, the forces of, of Sauron and, and how they rank compared to what has been considered the norm, you'd think it would be them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And yes, um, Two Juice Man, the mouth of Sauron, certainly thought he was hot stuff. Yes, yes. There are other candidates, right? There are other captains, um, Black Numenorians, and who knows what. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I totally agreed. Gandalf is not only just saying, let me help you picture this. I mean, I do think he's saying that, but I agree he's not just saying that. He is also spelling out what would happen, right? He would pour his power out upon the Ringwraiths, and it would be awful. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, okay. Um, we'll get, we'll get I know I've been looking way ahead here this evening. Let's get back to, uh, let's get back to, uh, uh, well, we're not on the knees of Karathras, we're on the ankles of Karathras, or you know, vaguely near the toes of Karathras. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now it's time to look behind Fourth Thalos. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, uh, okay. Oh, man, you guys are so full of good questions. But no, every single one of your like posts here is a, is a, is a, a distraction. Can't talk about that right now. Okay. Okay. Um, yep, don't worry. As JJ says, we'll get to that in a few decades. Um, uh, yep, yep. No, we'll get. We'll talk about Black Numenorean someday. It's totally going to happen. Okay. Frodo's assessment. Then we must go on, if there is a way, said Frodo with a sigh. We must go on, if there is a way. Now, Frodo is sighing because he knows what this means. He heard the conversation between Aragorn and Gandalf. He knows that this was only one of two viable options. They can't go like the, 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 the uh, Gap of Rohan, not a viable option. Going back to Rivendell, not an option. Clearly now, Gandalf makes that very plain. Um, the only two options were the pass through the snow and the dark and secret way that Aragorn was terrified of. Frodo was hoping it wouldn't come to that. He is here resigned. We must go on if there is a way. It, it seems like he's basically inviting. He's like, you know, footnote or like translation. Spill the beans, Gandalf. Let us know. Tell us the thing, right? Um, tell us the thing that... Um, you know, it's time for you to say the thing that you didn't want to, that Aragorn didn't want you to say. 
Frodo sighs. So Frodo sigh. I think it shows his resignation. He understands. None of the rest of them, apart from Aragorn, understands. He understands what this means. There is. It's not that there's no option. He knows Gandalf is softening them up for the fact that like they're not going to like the option that he's going to give. But it's only going to be better than the certain defeat that he's just described. Um, Sam sank back into gloom. Um, Sam had been with Mary looking up hopefully, right? And now Sam sinks back into gloom. Once again, Sam is the, um, our, you know, our boots on the ground, right? Our, uh, our perspective of, of what they're feeling, of what it's like, right? When Sam looks up hopefully, um, He's hopeful. Pippin's face is brightening because Gandalf has just said, like, he just put it out on the table, returning to Rivendell as if it were a legitimate option. Right. Um, and this of course is before he shoots it down. Frodo understands. Um, that's not going to be really an option, but Hey, are we going back to Rivendell? Why not? Why not be hopeful about that? If you don't understand the full picture as neither Pippin nor Mary really can here. Um, and Astro, I think that's a really good perspective on this. Um, Astro on YouTube says, in defense of Sam, his quest isn't the destruction of the ring, but the protection of Frodo. A simpler task in Rivendell than in Mordor. Yeah, there is a sense, and you know, not to say that he doesn't care anything about anything else other than his master. Indeed, the time will come when he will have to choose between his master and the accomplishment of the quest, right? Um, but he's not in that tight place quite yet. And right now, yeah, there's no question. Um, uh, he is in a pickle because Frodo has taken on himself to become the ring bearer. Um, he is Frodo's companion. He is here to help and protect Frodo. Should they return to Rivendell... And Frodo plop the ring on the table and say, well, we tried, we failed, on to plan B. Sam would be done, right? Um, uh, yeah, Sam would be, uh, um, they could go home. I, I, you know, when you don't know as Gandalf is not is just about to explain, that that's going to mean inevitable defeat and ultimately the, the destruction of the Shire. It's understandable to look hopeful about it, right? Exactly as Nancy says, enjoy his fifteen minutes with Rosie, and then boom, yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, but now he sinks back into gloom because he knows. They're going to go on. Frodo has said, "If we must, we mu then we must go on. If there's a way, so clearly, they're going to go on." And he's sighing not only because they're going on is now certain, because Frodo said it, um, but also because Sam seems to feel pretty pessimistic that the way is going to be <laughs> at all pleasant, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes. Um, yeah. Let's... Yeah, let's peek at the next slide. There is a way that we may attempt, said Gandalf. I thought from the beginning, when first I considered this journey, that we should try it. But it is not a pleasant way, and I have not spoken of it to the company before. Aragorn was against it, until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. Notice again that Gandalf is still being indirect. Right? He's still dragging this out. Um, there is another way. It's not pleasant. And Aragorn was against it. Um, yeah, yeah. He's going to force Merry to say, out with it, Abelard. You're exactly right. Um, Aragorn was against it until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. This is so much buildup. Um, now, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about this buildup from Gandalf, notice that the, the effect of all this, from the dark and the reference to the dark and secret way before, um, the dread that Aragorn had, the strange feeling of relief that Frodo feels when he hears that. And now, like, again, all of this continued buildup from Gandalf. Um, we've heard of the Mines of Moria. They didn't sound awesome. We've heard of the Mines of Moria in The Hobbit. We heard of the Mines of Moria. Um... We've not read Appendix A yet, so we don't know about the Battle of Azanul Bazaar and Burned Dwarves and all that sort of thing. But we've, um, but we have read The Hobbit, and in The Hobbit they talk about the Mines of Moria in Chapter One. They talk about the Orc Wars. We know that Thorin got his name Oakenshield there. We know that we know that the, a, a, a terrible war with the goblins was fought um, in the Mines of Moria. But we're also told then that um, the dwarves dealt with them. Uh, remember, this is in the context in chapter one when Gandalf is telling the story of finding the of of how uh, Thorin's father Thran ends up in the dungeons of the necromancer. Yeah, right. So, um, and remember, this prompts Thorin to say, "We have dealt with the goblins of Moria. Uh, perhaps we should give some thought to the necromancer next." Remember, you know, when he when he when he expresses that idea, and Gandalf says, "You know, don't be a fool. The necromancer is an enemy beyond uh, beyond." dwarves um, so in fact what we learn about the mines of Moria is A it's full of goblins B the dwarves dealt with the goblins of Moria they taught them a lesson and C it's a danger that is incomparably less than the danger of um, the necromancer of Dol Guldur even right um, yeah, yeah, um, good, Elrond, um, uh, Elrond refers to it in chapter three as well. Thank you, JJ. Um, when they're talking about how the swords ended up in the hands of the trolls, you know, these big famous swords, 
And he says, One may guess that your trolls had plundered other plunderers, or came on the remnants of old robberies in some hold in the mountains. I have heard that there are still forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria since the Dwarf and Goblin War. Deserted caverns of the mines of Moria. So there was the Dwarf and Goblin War, and now they're kind of deserted, right? All right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, anyway, the point is, had they mentioned the mines of Moria from the very beginning, right? Had that just been openly discussed from the start, Tolkien readers would have had every reason to say, yeah, uh, what's wrong with that? Nice caves. Here they're deserted. Maybe some orcs there. Who knows, right? Um, uh, you know, I mean, like, it seems like a, actually a really good route, right? Um, but Tolkien has gone far out of his way to invest this with a sense of dread so that by the time Gandalf finally does come out with it further down this slide and says, the road that I speak of leads to the mines of Moria. I can notice even the structure of that sentence. He doesn't just say, um, so I'm talking about Moria, folks, right? Like, it's Moria, okay? It's Moria. Um, the road that I speak of leads to the mines of Moria, right? I mean, it's like, exactly, Abord. It's like you should hear the dun-dun-dun in the background. Like He has created this effect so that now, I mean, it's, it resonates, right? Notice that to the hobbits, we're told it was a legend of vague fear. Um, but the fear is still, is still vague, right? Um, and for us, even more vague, I think. Um, anyway, what I'm saying is, I think that Tolkien has a very specific end in mind when he is doing all of this buildup. Um, he is managing our own responses as he is describing their responses and the anticipation of Aragorn and Gandalf to um, other people's responses. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. And this is... Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I dislike about that moment in the Peter Jackson films. You know, when Gimli's all like, oh, yeah, fantastic. It's going to be great. Let's go to Moria. Moria's great this time of year, right? It's, um, it creates a totally different effect such that it, it just becomes like that moment when then, like, um, uh, uh, when Frodo is forced to choose in the movies, um, whether they try to continue through the snow or whether they go through Moria, um, it sounds like a much more like arbitrary choice, essentially. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, so we, I, I, I don't want to, I don't get too far invested. Sufficient unto the week is the slide thereof. Um, but I did again 
want to glance ahead and look at all the buildup here that Gandalf is doing and how I, I and, and talk about the sort of literary effect that I think that that uh, Tolkien is having. It's always fun to to notice um, how Gandalf um, or sure. Yeah, Gandalf, but how Tolkien accomplishes uh, some of the things that he does. Um, anyway, but we will come back to this next time. I should mention before we go um, that um, uh, next time will not be next week. Um, I'm going to be away next week, uh, but I should be back the week after, and then we'll have uh, we'll have a couple more sessions pre-Mythmoot. So, um, in fact. Tuesday night is the one night of the week I won't be missing uh, on the week of Mythmoot even itself. So, um, uh, so uh, we should be uh, right through. Uh, I think right through June. We'll see. Let me not promise that before I see what that week looks like. Um, but thanks, everybody. Um, I will see you guys in two weeks, and it's time for our field trip. For those who can stick around, thanks for that. All right. How are you this evening, Valori? Glad you're feeling better. Um, yeah, I'm doing better. My voice is back. Thanks. Good. Good. Oh, I'm excited to be back. Let's see. I remember how to play this game. <laughs> Huzzah, indeed. Wait, sorry? What'd you say? Uh, sorry, sorry. They did made us do a group cheer. Oh, great. Yes. A rowdy multiple huzzah. Excellent. So yeah, I'm like I don't know. This just feels like a like I I this is hardly Peter Jackson, but this feels like a, a comedic quick cut where they you know the, their heads pop out of the snow and go, well, couldn't possibly be worse than this, right? Never, right. but it's it, I mean you don't even have to know Elvish though to think that Moria and Mordor sound a little too similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. Um, uh, it is a really interesting point. It's one of those moments where, like, you know, Tolkien is doing some, um, you know, doing some some language work, right? Um, yeah. James uh, James Tauber did a whole space module on this, going through and 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 looking at the ways in which Tolkien embeds within the Lord of the Rings itself, um, like instructions on you know patterns for how to understand the you know his his invented languages um yeah and um and that's certainly one but as you say it's more than just um like yes you can notice like okay mordor um you know if you look at moria mordor and gondor right you can begin to put a bunch of different things together um but um but it's more than that, right? As you suggest, uh, Mordor is um, Mordor is the bad place. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so the mere similarity there should itself be a little bit unsettling. I mean, again, even like you don't have to know that more means black. It still sounds very much like the Latin sort of more 
mori mori turi for death or mm-hmm. something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I um, I know that Tolkien explicitly said that the name of Moria has no connection with the Greek word Moria, which means foolishness. It's like the opposite of wisdom. Um, but I still don't believe him. Um, my my name my maiden name is Joria, so you can imagine that Monica Joria was accidentally turned into Moria quite a few times on choir programs and whatever. Right, right, right. Okay. Oh, hey, is it? Uh, oh, it's daylight. It's, it's dawn. We're gonna get daylight the whole time. That's delightful. Okay. Um, so let's um. We're gonna, we're gonna, we were heading back up towards the border again, but we'll give uh, Valoria, we'll give you the really quick tour, because I want to okay. see if you can come up with any theory to explain the thing that's puzzled us for the last two weeks. So we were, we oh. noticed first that like here's an old ruin, probably first era, looks relatively mm-hmm. small. Um, there were, there are, you know, the constructions tend to be up, you know, they're starting anyway, up in the hills all around this big valley that the farm is in the middle of now. Mm-hmm. Then when we came up this way and we saw this tower, which, which looks like a second epoch tower, like a, a civil war age tower, probably. And then we went, of course, up yeah. to this big ruin on the hill, which is plainly a Cardolan construction because you can see the huge yeah. Cardolan towers built into the front panels there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was briefly confused because I was like, why do we have this grandiose front facade? Um, And yet, as you'll see, the doorway is positively dinky. I mean, it's like this teensy little door. I'm like, how would you build this whole huge facade and, uh, you know, and, and, and courtyard space? And then have this tiny little door. And well, the answer is if it's a tomb, right? So that seems to be the case. I, I was at yeah, first, I was like, I would, I would you see how tiny that door is? It's ridiculously small. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it also could, uh, yeah, wow. This is... Yeah, it's really small. Anyway, but, and, and so at first I was like, they probably put this tomb up yeah. later on. And, you know, the, the tomb that's sitting out there, like the sarcophagus that's sitting out there. And then I, we, mm-hmm. we came in and I was like, hey, I, I wonder what this used to be. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's totally a tomb. So uh, so this yeah, is like a mausoleum. Mm-hmm. Now, the corridor um, nothing. <laughs> there are several other examples, but this is the thing that we can't understand. So okay. there are these, it looks like a sarcophagus, but yeah. it is a about um, 15 feet long and B, disturbingly, even distressingly asymmetrical in ways that just don't even make any sense and we can't figure out what this could be. I mean, look at that. Look at the... Yeah, but look how how Rofner's lying down. I know. On their side. Thank you, Rohner. That was very helpful. It's... It reminds me of what I've seen of older burials where people are buried on mats usually cradling something like a shield or a sword and uh it would also make sense to have be surrounded by all of his possessions inside like there'd be a big cache of stuff inside that he would need in the next world right um which they're obviously obsessed about but yeah when i've that was the only thing that i was thinking like if they 
made it extra capacious. I mean, again, like you could put, you could put like, uh, you know, eight of us in this sarcophagus. Um, oh yeah. This stacked up neatly. Um, it's ridiculously large. Um, mm -hmm. and even if you're going to make it asymmetrical, like it's, it, it's, it has, as Dora Stroke says, there is no axis of symmetry or axis of rotation. Like it's, it's, it's just non-Euclidean. Yes. Bothersomely. <laughs> But at the same yeah. time, is angular, right? Like it's it's like yeah. geometric. It's you know it's a it's a pentagram, ex or uh, yeah, it's like a pentagram. Except now, are they are they all like this, or is this yes. the one you saw? All of they're them. All, like all, this? all these green ones, because there are other ones too. So let's go downstairs because we'll, we'll, there's a yeah. There's two like more. Unless stories. they're cradling a child on one side, I don't really see the point of that shape unless it's some sort of sacred geometry. Right, but like the the mother and child would have to each be fifteen feet tall. Anyway, it's yeah, with I, their I stuff, get. So there's another story far. down here, and this this story is there's see there are two more of those big ones against the wall, and then there's a regular yeah, one in the middle, and we've got other shit. stuff in the middle. And the, I don't want to spend too long because we've already been through here twice. Uh, but yeah, we'll, okay. we'll 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 take you through. The <laughs> bottom story is the more interesting one, and we got more of these suckers all down the middle here. Um, yeah. And then there are those two really interesting statues down at the bottom, which you should just take a glimpse at. We looked at them for a long time before, um, but just so that you recognize them if we see them again. The, the green accents are amazing. I love this. It's really fun. I. It's just weird. Um, I think that's supposed it, to be. The fact that it's you're just, weird, just off and I don't get the kind of working. <laughs> I don't get the. Um, the asymmetrical sarcophagi. They just, they confuse yeah, me. Anyway, okay. So, but yeah, it would make sense if they were out. lying on their side and the shape was meant to echo the shape of somebody lying on their side without necessarily fitting the dimension. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> and, That's and, the best I got. Sorry. I, I could believe it if they were normally sized. But, um, not okay, for anyway, people. so here's important this other hole that's be been blasted through from the outside. Whoa. Yeah. And then we went down. So we're headed uh, now north now above like north and north and west into sort of the main area of the South Down. So last week we went through there and then we came up this way and we're looking at some of these things down in the valley. Um, we were guessing... Dragon Rider, that's an interesting theory. Uh, with the size, it reminds me of the tombs for the Apis bulls in Egypt. Oh, yeah, I, I was yeah. trying to imagine it like a non, you know, non-humans being buried there. But I mean, even we horses haven't seen are too small. They have so much artwork. You think they would, if an animal was sacred, they'd have some design in there of that. Something that would indicate it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we were looking at... We've got some pillars up on the hill here. We were looking at this one down here. Um, this one looked like a renovated first. Our theory was, um, if you stand up here, you can see how that uh, circular floor uh -huh. um, here within the ring of the pillars is um, horribly placed with relationship to the pillars. So... One yeah. thought was that this was an architectural school and that somebody failed their final exam. Yeah. Um, 
or the but ground. But also, then system. someone had the more charitable suggestion that perhaps it has like slid over time. Um, I, yeah, from the from the position of the rocks around it, that would not surprise me either. Right, that the rock has uh, has has been pushing up and 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 pushing it across. That seems that seems possible. It's really funny mm. how rocks do that. Like I've been living. Um, I've been living at my current house now for 10 years, which is long enough that the rocks in the yard, of course I live in New Hampshire, so like anything below four inches into the ground is solid granite. And um, Oh yeah, yeah. The rocks are, um, like the rocks have actually pushed themselves up through the ground very noticeably more than they were when we moved in. Yeah, well we got a quarry near us that does blasting, so we get all sorts of fun things coming to the surface. Oh, well there you go. And cracked from the foundations. Lovely. Okay, so we were here, and we were going to head now uh, north, um, first to see this little tower up on the hill up here, which looks just oh, like the other tower. One. And then it, I wanted to... there was no to... fire damage at the tomb, either. Yeah, there was not. And then I wanted to um, um, go up over the top of the hill and look at what we can see of the Lone Lands from there, having already been down the far side mm -hmm. to kind of get a little bit more of the uh, of the context and see where we are in relationship. Yeah, to, where it connects. Yeah, to um, Weathertop and all that stuff. Whoa, this one, this one took a licking. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, these are some of those rocks that look like they're stacked, but they're not. That's just a geological formation we decided. Yeah. These pillars here are really beat up, though. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this dish does look like it burned down and collapsed. <laughs> this pillar's going to go at any minute. <laughs> you can see big chunks that taken out of the base. It's also floating slightly, but... Huh. Huh, so... Here again. Yeah, so, it definitely looks like the fire knocked out the wooden supports and everything went kaput. Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking... So I think this is more evidence. I tend, I still tend to believe that these pillars and colonnades out here are first epoch. Mm -hmm. um, Arnor? Yeah. And then basically the Cardolan folks came in here and they were like, we've got a perfectly good colonnade. They're building on the old building site, basically. Yeah. Well, if they, if they clear the ground for you, why not? You know? Yeah. Although it's very hilly now. Right. This would not be an ideal foundation for building on at the moment. I would not. Okay, all those... Some of those stars oh. seem to be pointing up and some down. Huh. That's weird. I don't think I've ever seen they that. They hadn't renovated it fully yet. Whoa. Is this the pillar you were talking about? Yeah. The one that's still resting on a pencil point on the ground? Uh, yeah. Uh, don't stand yeah, too close. Nobody lean on that. that sucker. Yeah. They look like they've been eaten by beavers, though. Look at this. Oh, I see. They're sideways. This whole panel is sideways. Yeah, we yeah. seen some of those last time around. 
some of these sideways stars? Yeah, I was yeah. in the other one down the way. Well, well, you can see the walls definitely shifted. Like a lot of these bricks are pointed sideways, but just simply because it's collapsing. No, but the upright tower is clear, clearly still. Oh, I need to get a better view advantage with that one. Yep. I was looking at the smaller mausoleum shaped one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was thinking of that too, Arnold. Yeah, the sideways stars are really strange. Um, yeah. It does look like there's still an orientation, though. I mean, I think that it's like uh-huh. that side is up, you know. Um, which I, looked, I can't, I can't point to it properly. A mirror. It looks like a metal plate that's kind of buckling a little. That side is up. What? It it looks like it's on a metal plate, like a like a sort of veneer plate that it's huh. buckling kind of. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe it just looks sideways because the metal's warping under the under gravity. Possibly. But, you know, the thing is, once you've lost the whole concept of the Numenorean symbolism, you know. Yeah. The Numenorean star points down because it commemorates the guidance to the island of Numenor, Elena, the island of the star. Um. Mm -hmm. You know, the beam of light shining down from um, Arendelle's star that showed the way to Numenor. So it's a it's a sign of uh, it's a remembrance of Numenor of old. It's a sign of like the guidance of the Valar toward your destiny, um, which was retained even by the exiles here in uh, in Middle Earth in the Third Age. Um, And so we were getting that. Clearly in Anuminous, we seem to be getting that through Arthodyne, but in Cardolan, they've they've just they're losing it. Right? Well, like, maybe yeah, it definitely sounds like it's turning into a telephone game. They know there's a star, they know it's supposed to point somewhere and they don't know where or why. Yeah, I mean it's still a seven pointed star, so you know, there's that. Um yeah. but yeah, it really has lost its its symbolic weight. All right, what's uh Let's go up the hill. Let's see what we can see over here. Another ruin. Oh, right. I see where we are. Look at that. Hey, we're up on top of the cliffs that you could never get up on top of. (laughs) It's a good feeling. That's so exciting. That means... I remember uh, the quests that went along with this. Yeah, yeah, the one with the dwarf who was the dwarf, and you went underground beneath that ruin right there in the foreground. So I'm not sure why it was definitely on the lines of "It'll be great, trust me." Yeah, I don't remember exactly what it was either, but I remember. Yes, I remember being sent by a dwarf underground there. Because yeah, so here we are. Is the map? Uh, We uh, we got. Yeah, you got the map. Like a Ostgurus. Yeah. And the Red Swamp. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay, right. So we came out, the road came out 
uh, in Minas Ariel last time. And now we're, we're further down the road, right? That's, what, which one was that called? Right, Nidros. That's right across the road. That's the uh, the one with all the um, the one with all the half orcs and such over there. Oh yes. Um, right, and then heading over towards what's it called? Oscar Ruth, is it? Mm, yeah. yeah, Oscar Ruth. That's yeah, there's Oscar Ruth, which you can just see over there. And then past that would be the bridge to Rivendell, the troll shaft. Yeah, if we come up here, we can probably we might be able to see the last bridge, maybe. Ooh. Oh. All these scraggly trees. A little bit. Maybe. You can see kind of the bend oh, where it Oh, would... went too far. <laughs> uh -oh. Hang on. Come back around again. Yeah, all these scraggly cedar trees are in the way. Yeah, yeah, that little hill is in the way. You can just see the lowland swamps. You can see the river the... if you look in the right angle. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you know, I was, I'm seeing the river. We just can't see the. Yeah. And look at the standing oh. stones over there. Oh, that's, that's where the earthkin are. Yeah, earthkin. Right. Yeah. So right above that is the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see it. I see it, but we can't. We can't quite see the bridge. That's why I was trying to like lean over here to. See if I could see around the corner to the bridge, but we can't. Uh, and the troll shell is over Might there. Do your settings, because I can see the bridge. I can't. Yeah, I'm on those settings because my internet's been awful. Yeah. But sometimes you get to see fun stuff that way. Oh, well, there's Weathertop. Right, and there's Amonsul right there. Again, this it's being able to come up um, being able to come up from the south here just yeah. really get they, they've given a really wonderful sense of why Amonsul was so important in Cardinal. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, you know, everything like it's really the center point from all around, like from the, the whole. It's practically the middle of Cardolan to the north. Like it's the it it would guard the whole northern border without it. Um, you know they yeah. could put watchtowers on if that that might have been a watchtower, the one that was burning down over there. Yeah, it's um, big umphalos in the middle of everything. Yeah, yeah, but you could see how just how critically important that would have been. Yeah, very Certainly cool. Certainly get so the, the drop on anyone the around way, you for a hundred miles. The ones across the road, those were, um, those were Rudaur, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Yes. The ruins over there? I believe. And these down here were Arthodyne ones. Yep. Um, because Cardolan lost first. Mm hmm Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, this is, um, Amethorn, really a neat new perspective. I mean, we can see almost the entire scope of the Lone Lands from here. And, and we're allowed to look at almost all of it. Yes. Yeah, we can't see Minas Ariel, but, or the Forsaken Inn. And we can't yeah. quite see, like, into Gartha Garwin, because it's down you know, the hill on the other side of Oscaruth. But you can really see the whole geography of the Lone Lands from here. 
Yeah. No, I was, I was just saying it's really cool, like, how much freedom we have to explore in here now. Yeah. yeah. It really no, feels the, uh, unconstrained. The taking out of the artificial frontiers is so much fun. Yeah. Oh, and I'm over the cliff. <laughs> yeah, I keep... I did that once, and I'm... I flew too close to the risk sun, I'm or... looking off into the distance. Neato. Yeah, so, um... So, Arno, my sense of it is not that, um... Cardolin was conquered and then occupied, but rather that it was defeated and then could basically be ignored. So that's why Arthodyne was able to come and build this row of keeps along the south edge of the road. Again, you notice Probably how we were... they were building that giant mausoleum. Right, exactly. They're too busy building No, I mean, that scams. That's why they fell. Because they cared more about the dead than the living. Well, we have seen that a bunch in Cardolan. Um, yeah. Yes, and you're right, Aranas, that Rudaur were, were definitely the bad guys of the three. Um, but they were all fighting. Um, they weren't totally allies. I mean, they were all fighting for Amonsul here in particular. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I get... When we were discussing the Lone Lands ages ago now, um, we were... Um, you know, we were looking at how you could really see the road as the frontier with the, you know, the, the, the fortresses of Rudaur squaring up against the fortresses of Arthodyne on the south part of the, of, of the road. And it's so clear to, so clear to see from up here. Um, it's, uh, it's in fact very dramatic. Yeah when we could only kind of make it out from the map mostly before. Even from Weathertop itself. I mean, of course, Weathertop is an even better vantage point. But even from there, because it's so high up and so far away, you don't get the same perspective. Uh, you can only imagine how crazy that light show must have been up there. Yes. Yes. And yes. it probably Again, wasn't just by mean? the Hobbit. Yeah. When, when Gandalf was up there. The, yeah. the light that Frodo saw from the top. Of the yeah, light. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. Imagine how recalling... far that must have been seen for everyone. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Arnold is uh, talking about how it, you know, it looks like, um, you know, the lines in World War One with no man's land in between. Um, yeah. Almost. Especially with the way how... Um, you know, nasty and scrubby this land is, as Dolor Stroke was saying. And of course, yeah. you know, remember, Arnold, that in this very area is the one of the primary places, the the primary place in early game, certainly, um, where they were exploring the idea of how the land is twisted and ruined um, by war. Yeah. I think that this is what what I always have really respected and appreciated about the Gartha Garwin plot lines. Um, the whole red maid concept um, uh -huh. is 
it's a really fun and I think a really insightful kind of dramatization um, within the Middle Earth scope of exactly the kind of damage that that Tolkien does describe when it comes to uh, you know the Brownlands and uh, you know yeah. the area around Mordor. Um, but um, the sickness in nature done by evil. Yeah, yeah, we get this little glimpse into it um, here in the early game area. And I think, you know, so yes, the, the fact, Arnold, that that should happen here in a land which clearly bears the scars of that exact kind of like two frontiers up against each other with destruction in between. Um, yeah. That seems very fitting. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, hey, Rowan, well, that see. might be a... That, Rowan, that's a good question about how, uh, how far could we see a light from up there, but I think we'd be at the limits of the game's rendered distance for that. Possibly, I'm yeah. not sure it would be real-life physics on that. Yeah. But uh, we'd also have to do it at night. Yeah. Okay, so looking back now, I want to just see, because I want to make plans for where we head next time, because it's just about time to go. Oh, yeah. I want to see if there are if there are more ruins in this north country, do we have to come up this way again? Oh, there's another one over there. Okay. So let's, um, <laughs> next time we'll this ride straight up here. With ruins. We'll ride straight up here and then we'll continue. I want to continue working our way down <laughs> counterclockwise or clockwise um, uh, through past uh, Howth Nirui, which is the mausoleum where we started today. We're not going to go through the mausoleum again next time. Three times is enough. And then we're going to, so we'll ride straight up here and then we'll circle down looking at other ruins that we see, trying to again get a sense of what Cardolan was doing here broadly in this region. Um, and then we'll get down to, uh, towards Amon Fern. So maybe we'll get all the way down to Amon Fern next time, maybe not. Um, but we will, we will see what we do. And then we'll continue down towards, uh, what is it? Nim Hearth. Is that an H? There? Nim Hearth? Uh... In, uh, I can't tell. I can't tell what letter that is. Um, Nim Nimbarth. Barth is it a B? Nimbarth. Nimbarth. Yeah, I think it is a B. It looks like the B in Tharvad. Okay. Okay, Nimbarth. It Nimbarth. is a B. Nimbarth. Okay. Nimbarth. Anyway, so that's 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 the road ahead. So we'll start here next time. Um, All right. And uh, don't forget, next time we'll be in two weeks, as I will not right. be here next week. So Before thanks very tonight. much, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you guys in a fortnight. Thanks now. Good night. Good night.